A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to The Three Ravens Bestiary, a bonus series all about mythical monsters, legendary creatures and things that go bump in the night. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Connor. Well, hi there. So, Martin, last month our bestiary episode was all soggy and wet as we were talking about Selkies. <laughs> yes. And I know you're a person who thrives on variety, which makes me suspect that today we're going to be looking at something nice and dry. Well, we most certainly are. We've done the fiery phoenix already, the ethereal unicorn, the frosty Krampus and the shadowy banshee. But an element we've been missing is Earth. So today we're going to be looking into the history of of Bigfoot. Well, he's very earthy, isn't he? Mm. A forest-dwelling creature and probably quite a smelly one, I'd imagine. Well, he is indeed, and the smell of Bigfoot is something reported by Bigfoot hunters, actually. And while Bigfoot or Sasquatch are specifically American creatures, we're also going to fold in some discussions of some other Bigfoot-style beasties, including the Yeti, the Australasian Yowie, and their English or European equivalents, the Woodwose. Oh, excellent. I do love a Woodwose. You do, but I try to shave regularly because otherwise you say I get a bit too tickly. <laughs> this is true, but very handy in winter for keeping warm. So. <laughs> OK, so to start with Bigfoot specifically, a lot of people make a fuss about Bigfoot and basically say rather cynically that the entire Bigfoot myth is all made up. Shocking. Yes, yeah, shocking. And for sure, there are definitely reasons to feel suspicious. We've probably all seen the famous patterson Gimlin film from 1967. That's the one where Bigfoot was captured on celluloid walking across what looks like a clearing in a forest with its feet obscured by fallen trees and roots. I know the one. Bigfoot kind of looks back towards the camera and it's all dark and hairy. Yeah, that's the one. So that film was shot at a dried riverbed at Bluff Creek in California by two men, Roger Patterson, who died in 1972, and Bob Gimlin, who's still alive. 
Gimlin actually became a film director off the back of the Bigfoot footage. Hmm. Now, that specific incident has been poured over endlessly, and I don't want to get into it too much detail about it, but there are definitely two sides to the story. I mean, as you may know, dear listener, I'm probably the doubter in the Three Ravens' <laughs> Nest. So right now, my sceptic sense is tingling just yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, the most suspicious thing is that Patterson, who people generally knew to be a bit of a dodgy character, a bit of a con man, didn't own a camera. So he went out and rented a camera for the first time, specifically for this day out at the woods where he said he wanted to make a film of himself horse riding and that's where he and Gimlin just happened to catch sight of Bigfoot uh-huh. and also be the only people to have ever done so at Bluff Creek which is yeah, pretty lucky, isn't it? You could say that. You could put it that way. Yes, lucky. Patterson also didn't return the camera on time, so had to pay a fine, which is kind of by the by. But the US Forest Service did visit the site, took photographs of the tracks they found, and they made plaster casts. So there is at least some physical evidence that Bigfoot did walk down that riverbed and off into the woods. Although, as I say, nobody else has recorded ever having seen Bigfoot or a Bigfoot-style creature in that area ever since. Hmm, well, let's say, for argument's sake, that this Bigfoot really was actually there. Okay. When it comes to the plaster casts, what did they show? Well, they show, I have to say, some pretty well-defined, not terribly convincing-looking feet. I mean, they look quite like prop feet, in fact, just like prop feet made by people who perhaps didn't know all that much about feet and how feet evolved and actually work. So are we happy to say that maybe when it comes to the Patterson-Gimlin film, it's quite likely it's a hoax? I think we probably are. I mean, I always want to leave room to be proven wrong and I'd love to be proved wrong, but the plaster casts are actually what does it for me because when you look at other Bigfoot plaster casts, they look completely different. Hold on, what do you mean other Bigfoot plaster casts? Well, many, many people across North America have made plaster casts of what they say are Bigfoot tracks. And while some of these do look to perhaps be tracks from bears walking upright, there are undoubtedly some Bigfoot tracks that are far more convincing and much harder to explain. Well, this all sounds a bit more promising. Well, there are other dubious ones, don't get me wrong. I mean, the kind of modern Bigfoot craze began in 1958 with loads of plaster casts made by Jerry Crew and Andrew Genzoli in Six Rivers National Forest. That's also in California. And in 2002, it was revealed after his death that Jerry Crew had made a series of wooden feet and gone about in Six Rivers Forest for years, making fake tracks to create hoaxes. Oh, brilliant. So he really persisted. With it. He did. And it's from that 1958 incident that we get the term Bigfoot, actually. The papers invented it because of the size of those prints. But anthropologist Jeffrey Meldrum, professor of anatomy and anthropology at the Department of Biological Sciences at Idaho State University, a genuine scientist who specialises in the study of bipedalism, so two-footed walking in primates, he possesses over 300 footprint casts that he maintains could not be made by wooden carvings, bears or human feet 
based on their anatomy. Okay, colour me intrigued. Yep, Meldrum, among others, says that these prints do provide evidence of a large non-human primate present today in North America. And just because we haven't seen or caught one doesn't mean that there isn't a Bigfoot or Sasquatch creature out there. Well, look, I'm not saying I'm convinced they don't exist, mm. although I'm curious to know how long the trail of evidence is. Because you said the term Bigfoot originates in 1958. Yeah. But what are the old oldest bits of evidence that we have. Mm. For example, did Native Americans believe in something like a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch? Heck, yes, they did. In fact, the word Sasquatch comes from an old Salish word. The Salish peoples are the indigenous tribes of North America's Pacific Northwest. Today, this area includes the states of British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Idaho and Montana, with the region stretching up through the most western coastal sections of Canada and round into Alaska. Well, this is pretty exciting. Mm. I've, I've got to say, I don't think I've ever heard of the Salish peoples before. Which is fair enough. Salish is a term for an ancient, ancient group of 23 languages that seemed to split about 6,000 years ago out of Proto-Salish. It's a linguistic term, basically. I see. But uh, tribes who speak Salishian languages include the Nuxalk Nation, the Spokane people, the Samosans. I mean, about 300 tribes speak or were known to speakers. Wow. And of course, this is across a huge geographical area. If we were to compare it to a European nation, how big is it? Well, it's almost double the size of France, for example. So out of Salish, we get this term Sasquatch, which means, simply put wild man. Okay, so when you said we were going to link the English wild man or wood woes with Bigfoot, I did wonder how we were going to get there, but suddenly it all makes sense. Excellent, because we have some pretty old art from the tribes of the Pacific Northwest, which do show the Sasquatch. Perhaps the most famous examples are the petroglyphs at Painted Rock, which is the sacred site of the Tachi Yokut tribe in Central California. As ever, I'll put some pictures on social media. Yes, you will be able to find those at facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and twitter at three ravens pod yep now the tachi yokut who are also known as the tool river indians revere painted rock as a sacred place and at painted rock the art shows an entire sasquatch family along with other animals and mythical creatures such as the coyote eating the moon as well as beavers frogs eagles condors and human beings are also there in amongst them this is incredibly interesting because in england we also have ancient cave art of Mm. course we were talking about cresswell crags in your derbyshire episode just the other day and there's an even more developed tradition in europe more broadly so how old are these painted rock petroglyphs they're estimated to be about a thousand years old so modern art really by comparison to the oldest petroglyphs found so far in europe in fact the actual oldest cave art we know of in europe is the malatraveso petroglyphs near cathereth in spain those are sixty-four thousand years old and made by Neanderthals. Wow, 64,000 years old. Yeah, although those are just hands, while in the Chauvet Caves in southern France, we have the earliest known pictorial petroglyphs, which date from 30,000 years ago. I mean, 
4,000 years ago is stupidly old, yes. but even 30,000 years ago is still mind-bogglingly ancient. <laughs> and uh, so what do the Chauvet petroglyphs show? Well, the oldest pictorial ones show humans hunting pigs, but there are a number of what we might call Venus figures, so fertility goddesses, plus a bull-human hybrid, so what we might recognise as a minotaur, plus woolly rhinoceros, lions, deer, erupting volcanoes. Oh, I do enjoy a woolly rhinoceros <laughs> yep. dream pet. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Chauvet paintings actually come in what seems to be two sets made roughly 5,000 years apart. They're super interesting. But there are quite a few European examples of that sort of thing, such as at Lascaux, Altamira and Coliboagia in Romania. And dates-wise, most of those come from about 15,000 years ago. Blimey. Well, I'm obviously going to take a moment to process all that. <laughs> but while I do, I can probably manage to just about put things in perspective and say that while the painted rock petroglyphs are still old... If they're only a thousand years old, then they're still younger than the Norman invasion. Yeah, that's actually a really good yardstick. Like I say, they're modern art, really. Yeah. <laughs> Picasso or Mondrian in cave art terms. <laughs> still, in terms of the beliefs of Salesian peoples, their cave art does tell us a story about the Sasquatch. And we also have beliefs about them being passed down by oral tradition, too. Lovely stuff. I feel a bit more on solid ground now, talking about honest-to-goodness folklore. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but very, very old things make me feel quite uncanny. Mm. Stories told around campfires, though, back in my comfort zone. <laughs> so what do we know about the Sasquatch from Salesian mythology? Well, first off, we know that the Sasquatch is considered to be a sad and lonely creature. They're often depicted crying. Oh, no. They're said to have five fingers and toes, big eyes, often with shaggy, long, reddish-brown hair, and to be between six feet and eight feet tall. In fact, they're actually a feature of the Salish creation myth. Now, do you want to hear that? Of course I want to hear that. <laughs> you know full well I absolutely categorically want to hear that. Why even ask? Yeah, I did know, but hey, I like to have my fun. <laughs> okay, so it's it's a bit long, so strap in. I'm ready. Well, the story goes that one day all the birds and animals of the mountains met underneath the full moon and decided to make people. The eagle, chief of the animals, asked each creature how they wanted people to be, and each animal took a turn and said what they had to say. Lovely. The fish said, people should know how to swim, like me, and be able to hold their breath and swim very deep. The hummingbird said, people should be fast, like me, so let them have lots of energy. The turtle said, people should be able to protect themselves, like me, so give them courage and strength. The lizard said, people should have fingers, like me, so they can make tools like baskets, bows and arrows. The owl said, people should be good hunters, like me, so give them knowledge and cunning. But the coyote said, people should be just like me, actually, because I'm so smart and tricky, so have them walk on all fours. Ah, cheeky coyote, always up to something. Yep. Now, the condor wasn't convinced and said, no, no, coyote. People should be different from us in some way, so let's give them hair, not feathers or fur, to keep them warm. And the eagle agreed, saying, people should definitely be wise and wiser than me, so they can help animals to take care of the earth. Good intentions there, eagle, but... You know, didn't quite work out that way. No, perhaps not. But then the Sasquatch, who had not yet said anything, shook his head and said, 
I also disagree with the coyote. Make them smart and tricky, sure, but people should walk on two legs like me. Okay, so the Sasquatch is seen as an animal Mm. and one that existed before humans. Yep, but it didn't end there because although all the other animals agreed with the Sasquatch, the coyote did it and got steaming angry. So he challenged the Sasquatch to a race and they agreed that whoever won the race should decide how people should walk. I feel like this isn't going to go well for the Sasquatch because... Coyote's going to cheat, isn't he? Well, the coyote started sprinting off along the agreed route and immediately took a shortcut. The Sasquatch was wiser than the coyote, though, and knew that, as you say, the coyote would cheat to win. So the Sasquatch stayed behind and helped the eagle, condor, and all the others to make people, drawing them with two legs instead of four. They drew us. Yeah, the animals all worked together to draw people on the ground and they breathed on them. And people came to life out of the earth. A bit like Prometheus in ancient Greek mythology. Yeah, very much like Prometheus. And obviously the Sasquatch was very pleased with people, so he went over to embrace them. But when people saw his wildness, they were scared of him and ran away. Oh no! Yep. Of course, the Sasquatch wept at this. But then, to make matters worse, that was when the coyote came back. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah, oh no indeed. Now, realising that the other animals had done this the coyote thought he deserved at least something to come out of the whole debacle so he drew himself eating the full moon (laughs) now all the other animals knew full well that the coyote didn't eat the full moon but to make him feel better forever after the coyote was known as the coyote who ate the moon Meanwhile, the poor old Sasquatch, knowing human beings are scared of him, still cries and does his best to hide himself from sight so we never have to see him again. Oh my goodness, that's so sad. (laughs) I mean, I do love that Sneaky Coyote is just kind of humoured by all the other animals. Like, oh sure, buddy, yeah, you you did eat the moon, well done. (laughs) But then the Sasquatch helped make us and now we don't see him because he's so unhappy we're scared of him. That's awful. Yep, but that's the explanation as to why we don't see the Sasquatch watch very much and it's otherwise said that he lives mostly on acorns and berries or the marrow of bones left behind after all the other animals have eaten the good parts of the prey sasquatch no he's tragic plus it said he's always hungry meaning the sasquatch is prone to stealing food if it's left out unprotected oh and it's probably also important to reiterate that in salesian legends the sasquatch is also very tall some words used to describe him are close to our word for giant so in that i think you know you have a seed of a connection between the north american bigfoot or sasquatch and the european wild man or woodwose oh excellent and how old are legends of the woodwose for example well you'll have to stroke your long tangled beard and keep a hold of your club for a minute or two yet but i'll tell you all about the history of the woodwose plus the yeti the australian yowie and much more right after this there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right then, Eleanor, let's get into it. The Woodwose. Yes, we spoke about a famous carving of a Woodwose way back in our Suffolk episode from Series 1. Mm. That one is on the font of St Bartholomew's Church in Orford. Precisely right. That particular Woodwose dates from the 15th century. Now, the earliest references to Woodwose in English writing comes from quite late, relatively speaking. We're talking 1340s. But we have names of places and of people, so family surnames, that are older and that contain Woodwose as a term. And in literature, the Woodwose are mentioned in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, for example, as well as the Wycliffe Bible. And Edward III was said to have had a very nice tapestry of one on his wardrobe, though it doesn't survive. So these examples of the English Woodwose in art and literature are full on medieval, meaning they actually come a little while after the earliest writing we know about and after the painted rock petroglyphs. Mm -hmm. Surely, though, it has to be older than that. Well, versions of them definitely are. In ancient Greece, we have the Silenus, or in Latin, the Silvanus. These are gods or spirits of the woods, and out of them we also get the term Sylvester's. They are mentioned by Pliny the Elder in his Natural History. Oh, Pliny. Yeah, he describes the Sylvester's, or forest men, as having humanoid bodies, but coats of fur, fangs, and no capacity to speak. So, monkeys. No, Eleanor, Sylvester's. (laughs) (laughs) So, from the Greeks, we get the term Sylvan and Sylvanian, meaning from the woods. And to be honest, if you look at statues of Silenus or Sylvanus, which in some places were considered as single gods rather than as a a sort of species, they do look just like woodwoes. And that we should probably clarify, because in England, certainly, the woodwoes is normally represented as being covered in hair and leaves with long hair on their heads and a big beard and they also usually carry a giant club. Yeah, quite right. They are in some senses quite like green men or foliate heads and the word woodwose literally means being of the woods or forest being. Yes. But in art and sculpture, probably the earliest example we know about of something that looks similar is a statue of Enkidu from the ancient Babylonian city of Ur. Uh, really? <laughs> Yes, uh, really. (laughs) Now, that one dates from about 2000 BC, so roughly 4,000 years ago. And he's much the same. A wild man, big beard, lots of hair, wielding a club. And I suppose the club makes the woodwose in these Middle Eastern and European examples different to the Sasquatch, doesn't it? Mm. Because the club, we know, is an ancient symbol of a couple of things. Yeah. The most famous example is probably the Club of Heracles or Hercules, which on the one hand represents martial prowess as a weapon, so yeah. an ability to fight and hunt and so on. But on the other, well, <laughs> I mean, it's generally accepted as a kind of fertility symbol. It is, yeah. The club is a kind of phallic symbol. And so the woodwose is traditionally represented as male, wangling his big old club like Enkidu or Hercules, whereas female woodland and forest spirits are generally represented as nymphs. But as discussed on previous episodes, you do get human-animal hybrids in the classical world 
world, like the male fawns and satyrs, the female lamia, and in some medieval art, you'll even find female woodwoes. You showed me that lovely picture of a family of woodwoes mm. from a medieval German painting, and they're just lovely, yeah. hairy people. <laughs> they're a bit more detailed than the painted rock petroglyphs, and really interesting. Well, in Central Europe, the idea of the wild man or schrat, as it's known, spelt S-C-H-R-A-T. That creature has quite a developed range of folklore attached to it. In some places, for example, the Shrat is connected to the devil and witchcraft, while in some places is a kindly creature or spirit connected to the fae. And the word appears in Yiddish as well as the Shretele or Shretelech. So when we think about the European and Middle Eastern equivalents of Sasquatch or Bigfoot, we have quite a bit of lore associated with them. Really. But I'm imagining that much like with Sasquatch or Bigfoot, the basic notion is that these creatures are outside human society, mm. almost like prototype people. Yeah. And that maybe we can connect some of those ideas to Neanderthals, for example. Mm. As if the legends of these proto-humans carried through from times when Homo sapiens did live side by side with Neanderthals. Well, we're left to speculate, of course, because humans did, as you say, live side by side with Neanderthals and did interbreed with them. About 2% of European and Asian DNA comes from Neanderthals. But wild man legends do go the other way, in that humans can go from being sophisticated modern people and be kind of cursed back into wildness. For example, in Abrahamic religions, in the book of Daniel, the king Nebuchadnezzar is turned into a wild man by God, growing hair and losing the power of speech, and so has to live outside of society. Fascinating. And we get the same story in The Madness of Sweeney, which is a 9th century Celtic story about a pagan king called Sweeney and poor old Sweeney is turned into a naked raving shaggy-haired madman by a Christian saint called Ronan Finn. Poor Sweeney and that does not seem very saintly behaviour from <laughs> Ronan Finn there. Well it's all because Sweeney was so pagan but yes he has a rough old time. Still as you say there's something there about humanity rejecting the woodwows type creature and about these wild men being outside of civilization, unable to communicate, behave savagely. It's all quite interesting. And when you raise the idea of savagery, that kind of introduces that notion of the noble savage, which mm, is an ancient stereotype. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm right in saying it's first brought about in the classical world, specifically by the Romans, <laughs> and is about the idea of foreign peoples living in a kind of primitive communion with nature and the landscape. Yeah, the Gauls are written about mm. in this way, as are the Celts. Anyone not Roman to some degree. I mean, it's a very <laughs> imperialist notion and quite racist, really. It is, and it endured for a long time. And it's, it's linked in some ways to the idea of pre-lapsarian and post-lapsarian states. Mm -hmm. By which I mean the idea of humanity before the fall of man, as written about in the book of Genesis. You, you have this idea... In the Garden of Eden, human beings were innocent. Then that sneaky serpent tempted us to eat the delicious fruit of knowledge. And boom, we lapsed. And so have been separated from innocence, separated from the sacred, scrabbling about in the dirt and hoping to once again find grace ever since. And that is quite a Western concept mm. and different to the Sasquatch, although they do have innocence in common. But you mentioned the Yeti earlier and the Yowie from Australia. What's their relationship? 
relation to concepts like divinity and sin? Well, in the case of the Yeti, also known in Tibet as the Wiley, in China as the Zhuren, and in Russia as the Chichuna, the descriptions are much the same. They're all large, tall, bipedal, ape-like creatures, all covered with hair. Again, they're sometimes depicted as having sharp teeth and fleeing from people. In fact, in 1921, British Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry led expeditions into the Himalayas and brought back these legends, which he said were of an abominable snowman. Oh, so that's where that term comes from. Yep, some classic British colonialism for you there. But still, the Yeti and all these Asian equivalents, of which there are dozens with slight variations, they aren't actually explicitly linked to snow. Instead, again, they live outside of society, so up in the mountains or deep in the forests. The key thing is they're in harmony with animals like bears and monkeys and cattle embedded in nature. And is the Yowie the same sort of thing? It's very, very similar. Known as the Yowie or Quinkin, they have their roots in Aboriginal oral tradition. The notion there from the dream time is that the Yowie existed before human beings and were the original kind of prototype for bipedal life. Gosh, they were quite similar. Yep, and we have cave art of Quinkin and Yowie in the Australian outback, dating from as early as 30,000 years ago, running through to about 15,000 years ago, so very close in time to the European cave art equivalents. They're all painted in red ochre and again show Yowie families surrounded by animals as distinct from humans. So interesting. Mm. And do we once again have the arrival of the British to thank for the exoticization of the Yowie? <laughs> of course. I mean, stories of the Yowie, whether as shy and noble savages or dangerous cannibalistic monsters, all kick off in the 19th century, mm. quite a while after British penal colonies were first established in Australia in the 1780s. And from around 1870 onwards, building throughout the 20th century, there's a boom in Yowie hunting. There's Yowie sightings, evidence of Yowie footprints, plaster casts are made. The same is very true of the Yeti, where lots of rich white toffs, intent on discovering the Yeti, zoom off to remote parts of Asia, looking to find evidence of these mythical animals. Well, there's that whole BBC podcast series from last year about just such a quest, isn't there? Yeah, strange listen, that one because it does feel at times quite like a Victorian enterprise. Two men intent on penetrating the wonders of nature, testing hair and gallivanting over mountains. It's kind of interesting, but, you know, spoiler alert, even with all their money and modern technology, somehow they still can't find the Yeti. But I mean, within a broader context, the explosion in Bigfoot interest in America in the 1960s fits within a kind of global craze. Oh, most definitely. Like I say, it started in the 1870s and reached its peak about a century later. And I think there's something deeply, deeply interesting about that because, well, there's no doubt that all of these ideas and all of these kinds of creatures, the Woodwos, the Sylvester, the Shrat, the Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Yowie, and the Bigfoot, plus dozens of other names for more or less the same thing, they really do occur all over the world in just about every culture. Wielding a club or not, I suppose. I mean, true, that is one difference between wild men in some places versus others. But still, I mean, 
even David Attenborough says that he thinks it's quite likely there is still a Sasquatch or Yeti-style creature to be found, specifically because the evidence in footprints is quite compelling. Oh, well, we believe it then, because yeah. David Attenborough said so. <laughs> Indeed. But it also seems that almost every culture has a version of these prototype people or primitive people. It's a pretty universal idea more than anything, these proto-humans who were around before we were and which survived somehow in one places, living kind of parallel lives to us, like hunter-gatherers, without the trappings of technology or written language. Or spoken language, it seems, for the most part. No, absolutely not. It seems that if these wild men can speak, it's only in a kind of animal language that we can't understand. So they're separated from us, but watching us, shy about us often, afraid sometimes, yet we, as people, want to find and see them and don't want to leave them alone. Well, there's definitely something imperial or missionary about that, isn't there? Mm. The desire to tame the wild and bring it into civilization. <laughs> yeah. But I also think there's probably something about modern humanity, or modern being a relative term, but still, modern people are kind of envious about, or at least curious about how life would work if we gave up the project of civilization, stopped grooming and returned to living in a wild way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a strong thread of the folk revival, isn't it? This craving or drive to find ways of living that are more, quote unquote, natural and less detached from how we think people lived in a kind of nostalgic golden past. Yes, absolutely. I just think it's a bit ironic that when it comes to wild men like Bigfoot and so on, it's quite often hunting parties that go out looking for them, tracking them like game. And that makes me really uncomfortable. Of course. Leave the wild men alone, everyone. <laughs> Particularly as they seem kind of sacred in the collective unconsciousness, mm. symbolic of nature and as a link between animals and humans. But I'd also say, more than that, as much as these legends exist all over the world, isn't the idea kind of more important than the reality? Mm. Aren't we really interested in those creatures because they're like us but not like us? Yeah. Like, through stories of them, we kind of have a yardstick against which to measure ourselves and our humanity and how human we are. I think so. And I also think that while it might sound very romantic, returning to more natural ways of living, having spent much of my childhood in the developing world, I must say that trying to get by without things like antibiotics or refrigeration is absolutely, in my view, categorically miserable. <laughs> I mean, it's all very well and good saying, oh, I wish I could live in the forest, but the novelty wears off pretty sharpish in my experience. Like... Life without ice cream? I mean, come on. Oh, I mean, think about something as simple as the modern bed. How amazing are beds nowadays? <laughs> yes. And you look at how people used to sleep on the ground or with beds of animal furs and leaves and straw. I mean, give Bigfoot <laughs> the opportunity to sleep in a nice full poster and have a bath with hot running water and some bubble bath and be all over it, wouldn't he? I imagine he would. Like, turn your heating off in winter, everyone, and consider, would I swap? Of course not. Plus, can you imagine having to blow dry an entire body covered with long shaggy hair? It would take Bigfoot ages to get ready to go out. Oh, especially if you wanted to curl it or indeed straighten it. <laughs> By the time he'd finished the process over a series of days, basically need another bath and the whole thing would just have to start over. <laughs> Well, Martin, thank you very much. That was super interesting. My pleasure. And of course, dear listener, if you would like to support the podcast and access tons of exclusive content, including loads of extra episodes and all of our episodes ad-free, do sign up to the Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And we'll be back on Monday when I'm taking us on an adventure to Lincolnshire. We're going from great big stompy Bigfoot men to tiny little 
little tiddyman. I'm not at all sure about these tiddymen. Oh, they're coming to get you, Ella. Oh, no. In the meantime, though, while our shaggy old wild man has clattered off into the forest that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Connon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.